So again, this morning we'll look at Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19, Daniel's prayer, and then we'll get to this prophecy of the 70 weeks, uh, Lord willing, next week. Let me read this word for us, <clears throat> reminding us once again that it is the very word of the living God. Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, o Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets." All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. <clears throat> For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy 
And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So ends, once again, the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May he write it upon our hearts here this morning. As we come before his word, let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Join me, please. Our Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would speak to us and fulfill the promise that you have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes everything you purpose for it, is successful in the very things for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And so make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we may walk according to everything that it teaches us. Our Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> well, every Sunday I reach out for this notebook and write down the prayer requests that you guys share. We did this on Sunday nights earlier and then began doing it on Sunday mornings as well. This is seven years worth of records in tiny little print of our prayer requests week after week after week after week. And what's amazing is, is as I thumb through this, which I do occasionally, to see the prayers that we've made, but to see the answers that God has given as well. There have been people who were sick among us, and God has healed them. And there's no explanation other than God being at work. One dear sister near death should have died. Um, we and many others prayed for a pastor up in Oregon who faced death, who is now recovered and serving again. And many others. We prayed for those who were without work. And we've seen people provided with good jobs. And we've prayed for many other things as well. Sometimes God answers in ways that we hope for. And sometimes he answers in ways that we don't expect. But it's, it's an incredible testimony, even in this small church, of God's great work among us. And it's, it's a wonderful little uh, record and, and, and wonderful thing to look at, to remind me and, and I think to remind all of us of the things that God has done for us. But as wonderful as that is, and it is incredible, it only represents a small part of what prayer is really all about, what prayer is meant to be. We have this great privilege, says Paul in Ephesians, as adopted sons and daughters of the great king, in Christ, by faith alone, to have bold access to his throne of grace and to ask for the desires of our hearts. And so that's what we do. We make our requests known to him. In fact, we're told in Scripture, we don't have because we don't ask. James says this in chapter 4, verse 2. John, in his first letter, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, tells us, 
if we ask according to His will, He will give us what we ask for. That's amazing. God will give us what we ask for. It's a wonderful relationship we have with God our Father. And there are wonderful promises that are part of that relationship. Prayer is a vital and necessary part of our relationship with God and asking Him things and making our requests known for things should be part of that. Yet prayer should also be more than that. More than just asking for things. We know this. We see this even in our relationships with our children. Our children do get to a stage in life where they stop just asking for things over and over and over. And there's a mutual relationship that develops there. A friendship. uh, More of a discussion. More of a sharing of burdens and of the day-to-day issues of life. When we get close to other people, when we deal with each other, we, we speak to each other in other ways than just asking for things. We exchange ideas. We apologize if we do them wrong. We forgive. We thank them for things that they do for us. We tell them how much we like them. And, and if we're close to them, especially close in a husband-wife relationship or with children or close friends, we tell them how much we love them and care for them. We miss them when they're gone. We express our love and devotion for each other. Our relationship with God and our prayer with God and to God should be very, very similar. An intimate and a close relation of relationship of love and devotion, of thanksgiving, of apologies, of forgiveness, sharing thoughts and ideas, laying our burdens upon Him. Now, there's various ways to think about prayer and the components of prayer. I could talk about posture. I could talk about timing. I could talk about um, when we do it, where we do it, when we do it alone, when we do it together. Those are all for another time. (laughs) This morning, I want to talk about the content of prayer. What is it that we pray for? There's one well-known formula that you might know based on the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Prayer can consist of adoration, the A, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, and the S is supplication, supplication or requests. It's a great model because before we even get to asking for things, we have to adore God, confess our sins to Him, and thank Him for what He's done for us. Another formula or model that we can make and should make regular use of is the Lord's Prayer. We use it every Sunday in our worship. We all have it memorized. I've said before that it's a great outline for our own private prayers. You can take each statement, each part of that prayer and expand upon it. And believe me, you can pray a long prayer doing that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Just think about expanding upon that idea who God is, His holiness, His majesty, His glory. You can go on and on and do similarly in other parts of the prayer. Well, those are a couple examples. The reason I bring this up is I think Daniel's prayer here in chapter 9 is another great model for us in our own prayers. 
It's a fine example of the prayer of a righteous man, as James put it in our New Testament reading. The prayers of a righteous person that avail much. There's a little introduction telling us when he prayed this prayer, but the prayer itself begins in verse 4. Through verse 10 is confession. Daniel confesses sin. Verses 11 to 15, he acknowledges that God's punishment for that sin has been appropriate. And then finally in verses 16 to 19, Daniel makes his appeal, his request, his plea for God's mercy and forgiveness and for restoration of the people. This morning I just want to take a simple, straightforward, uh, step-by-step approach through the passage, working through it section by section, and we'll note lessons from it as we go along. So there's the introductory part, verses, the latter part of verse 4 through 10, the confession of sin, 11 to 15, God's punishment, his right and just punishment, and then finally the last part, 16 to 19, the appeal, the prayer for mercy. So, we're introduced to this prayer in the first three, three and a half verses. Daniel tells us that this occurred during the first year of Darius the Mede. This is the general who was given command of Babylon by the conqueror Cyrus. Daniel has been reading scripture. He calls it the word of the Lord, given through the prophet Jeremiah. We can know it already, just a little aside, the attitude of God's people to God's word, even in ancient times. Jeremiah prophesied not long before Daniel's time. And we can see by Daniel's time, within a generation or so, it was already regarded as God's word. My point about this is you don't need a bunch of scholars sitting around a table scratching on paper to figure out what God's word is. God's people know God's word. God's people hear it. They know God's word when they hear God's word. And this is the case here for Daniel. Well, what Daniel learns, or or possibly reconfirms, because I don't think this is the first time he's read Jeremiah, is that 70 years must pass for the desolation of Jerusalem to be over. After 70 years, Babylon itself is going to be punished, and God is going to bring his people back to the land that he gave them. Now there's a question here, what are the 70 years? Well, here we are in Daniel 9, the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. The year is 539 B.C. You might remember from when we started this series, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the other young princes of the kingdom were taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon in 605 B.C. That's 66 years. So Daniel, in his own mind, might be thinking, wow, Babylons have been defeated. Here's Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian. Maybe those 70 years are about to be up. And indeed, about three years later, Cyrus issued his degree that the exiles could return. So about 69 years passed from 605 to 536 B.C. The hard part about that is is it's hard to say that that's the desolation of Jerusalem because Jerusalem survived as a city until 587 or 586 B.C., depending on how you count. 
And that year, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And so many people see that 70 years is beginning with the destruction of the temple. Well, 580-something to 536 is only about 50 years. That doesn't quite fit. But here's what we know as well, that the temple was rebuilt and rededicated in about 517, 516 B.C. So from 587 to 517, there's your 70 years. Some of the people left early. The destruction happened later. Some of the people went home early. But the rebuilding really didn't happen until later. And I think this fits with the narratives of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah as well. Uh, God was not happy with the people for rebuilding the city before they rebuilt the temple. And so I think it's hard to say that even though they were back, that the desolation had ended. I think the 70 years fits very well between the destruction and the rebuilding of the temple. So for Daniel, though, the, the, the time is approaching. The time is coming. The time is, is soon. And this is something that he longs for and hopes for. However you look at it, 70 years, according to the Psalms, is about the lifetime of one man. And Daniel has lived a nice long life. He knows that God's promise is about to come true. And that knowledge prompts him to pray. As he says, to turn his face to the Lord God. And in this case, accompanied with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, mourning attire, mourning activity, which is appropriate for the situation. The people are in exile. God's holy city is desolate. This is indeed a reason to mourn in sackcloth and ashes. Now, What I want us to get from this is a couple, three things already. First is that the more we know God's word, the better and, and I think deeper motivation we have for prayer. And that's especially true when it comes to the promises of God. I've already said, John tells us to pray according to God's will. And we find God's will in His Word. We find God's promises in His Word. And certainly it's God's will to fulfill His own promises. So we should know what God's promises are. Do you know them? Do you know where to find them in His Word? Do you know what His promises are for you? Do you know what the promises are for His church? We can only know these things by immersing ourselves in God's Word, being, in this case, like Daniel, being a student, being a a reader of God's Word, knowing what it says, knowing what God's promises are for us. Second, we see, related to this, that God's promises are a powerful motivation for people to seek Him. Now, unfortunately, people twist that today. We know this, and we see it in the popular preaching and teaching that's uh, promulgated out there on TV, on the radio. God wants this for you. God wants that for you. And what it is is to be healthy, wealthy, and rich, and prosperous, and never having any problems in life. But that's very attractive to people. People want to know that God is for them. That God has blessings for them. And while we oppose the prosperity gospel, and we should oppose the prosperity gospel, have we failed to 
offer a better alternative? Have we failed to speak to the yearning that is in people's hearts for blessing from God? Because we don't know the promises and we don't know how to share them. Something to, to think about. We ought to be pointing people to the better, the truer promises of God. And then just a third general observation related to the first two. It's worthwhile to learn how to pray God's word back to him. That's what Daniel's doing. You said this, now I'm going to ask for it. This is what Moses said in his law. This is what happened as a result of it. It's all right, it's all good, it's all just, but you also promised to send us back. I'm going to pray that. I'm going to ask for it. It's a wonderful thing to be able to take God's word as you're reading through it, pray what's in it. What do we learn from the stories? What do we learn from the Psalms? What do we learn from the teaching sections? Pray those things. Pray for God to make those lessons real in your own life, in your own walk. Prayer should be word-saturated. And that's an important lesson for us this morning. Well, let's get into Daniel's prayer as kind of a model or an outline for us. Several verses from the latter half of 4 all the way through 10 where Daniel confesses Israel's sin. He begins again by acknowledging the greatness of God. He says he is a great and awesome God. A God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That chesed, covenant love with his people. This is similar to the A in Acts, the adoration. He doesn't begin prayer just by diving in, but he he begins always, and I think this is helpful for us, acknowledge who God is, give him praise, give him glory. But then he continues with a long list of Israel's sins. In verse 5, he says, they have sinned, they have done wrong, they have acted wickedly, they have rebelled, They have turned aside from God's commandments and rules. Verse 6, he continues, The people have not listened to the prophets who spoke to all of God's people, from the greatest to the least. He acknowledges in verse 7 that the Lord is righteous, but in contrast to the people belongs shame. To this day, treachery is part of the way... Excuse me, part of the way that they live their lives. Treachery toward God. Verse 8 continues, We're shameful because we've sinned against you, from the kings to the princes to our fathers themselves. Verse 9, he makes his first appeal to the mercy and forgiveness of God, saying that it's needed because of the people's rebellion. And he concludes the confession section by acknowledging that the people have not obeyed the voice of the Lord God. They have not walked in his laws. That's quite an indictment of Israel, quite a confession of their sin. The implication being, again, from verse 7, at this time that the sin has continued. And there's a contrast between God's righteousness and Israel's sin. Their only hope is the covenant God, his covenant faithfulness, his chesed, his mercy, his forgiveness. 
For us, I think there's a clear lesson here of the need to approach God openly and honestly, confessing our sin. We know we need to do this, but sometimes we shy away from it. And, and my thought always is, God knows anyway. <laughs> you can't hide it from him. So you might as well just admit it. Same, same, similar to what we see in the Psalms, the psalmists are very open, very candid with God, with their fears, their hurts, their desires, their pains, their struggles. God knows those. So why would we try to hide it from him? Be honest. Confess our sin. Anytime we approach God, we need to have this attitude, this mindset. Again, it's why we make this part of our worship. As we enter in, as we approach God, we come confessing, acknowledging our sin. We can't come before Him, even in prayer, pretending to be someone that we're not. And forgetting about who we are in relationship to Him. We are sinners. He is holy. Now for us as believers, there's this additional glorious truth that by grace and through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, forgotten, they are no more. So we have this great privilege of coming before God also as as forgiven sinners. We can't forget, we are sinners. There's no harm, in fact, there's great good in acknowledging that as we come before him. Now what's interesting here, though, is Daniel's not praying about himself. He's included in his prayer. He's part of the we. We is repeated over and over and over again in this prayer. Daniel's not excluding himself from the sin. But he's not praying about himself. He's praying about the people of God, the people of Israel. And I think that raises a question for us. Is it appropriate for us to do the same thing, to pray for the church, the wider people of God? And I would say yes, I think so. Some people might object, well, Daniel's a prophet, he's kind of an officer in the, in the church, a spiritual leader. I'm not a prophet, it's not my job. True, there's a place for the officers of the church to go before God on behalf of the church and pray for the church and confess the sin of the church on the church's behalf. I think that's valid and I think it's appropriate. But I think every single one of us can pray for the church and for her sin. So if there's a distinction, officers pray on behalf of the church, but all the members pray for the church and can confess and acknowledge the sin of the church and ask that God would be gracious and merciful and forgive the church's sins. Have the people of God sinned? Well, sure, for Israel, the long list. Has the church sinned today? Do I need to continue? Do I need to make a list? Are the sins of the church not rather obvious? We've compromised, we've watered down God's word. We stand up and say it's infallible and inerrant, and then we change it around reinterpret it to say what we want it to say anyway, to try to validate our own sins or the sins of those we don't want to offend. We serve and nurture the gods that we make in our own hearts, the idols of our own hearts, spend incredible, excessive time and energy and money satisfying the desires of our own hearts instead of serving God and seeking what he desires. We're like the churches in Revelation. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night. 
we allow, we encourage, or we at least tolerate false teaching in our own midst. Teaching that leads God's people astray. We call ourselves Christians and then we act like the world around us. Often earning deservedly their scorn as hypocrites and judgmental, self-righteous, holier-than-thou posers, fakes, phonies. We're really not unlike the crowds who acknowledge Jesus as King. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on one day and then so rapidly turned on him at the instigation of their spiritual leaders. Should we pray for the church? Absolutely. We need it. Pray for the church. Lift us up. Pray that God would forgive our sins. Set us on the right path. Verses 11 to 15 is where Daniel begins to focus on what God has done. And he acknowledges that what God has done is just and right. It's deserved by the people. Verse 11, all Israel transgressed God's law, refusing to obey God's voice. And as a result, the curses promised in God's law have been poured out. This is the covenant God acting upon his covenant as his covenant people rejected him. Daniel sees this connection between the covenant and Israel's punishment. God warned his people this would happen in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, in the prophets over and over and over again. God warned his people. Now it's happened. Verse 12, God has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us. God has confirmed his words. God has done this just like he said that he would. Verse 13 continues, What is happening here is consistent with the law of Moses. And despite this, we, your people, have not turned to the Lord God and sought out his favor. Verse 14, This this calamity is not evidence that the Lord is cruel or the author of evil, but rather that God is righteous. God warned us that this would happen if we did not obey his voice. We didn't. And so he is righteous in what he is doing to us. And then verse 15, despite God's saving work, bringing his people out of Egypt itself, Daniel's recognizing God's saving work in his past, despite this, and despite the people knowing this, despite the people knowing that God could save them again, The people have failed to turn to God, and he says, We have sinned. We have done wickedly. That about sums it up. What can we learn from this? Well, I think one of the things that I see is that too often, when times of trouble come upon us or come upon the church, we resort to complaint and lament and look to others as the cause of our trouble. Now, sometimes this is true. Persecution from enemies is decreed for believers, for God's people. You will have tribulation, says Jesus. Do not fear, I have overcome the world. 
Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's about to come upon you. But he goes on to say, if it's going to happen, let it happen because you're Christians. <laughs> Not because you're meddlers or evildoers or busybodies. But so often, persecution happens and that's the first place we go. Let's blame others. I'm beginning to believe that's kind of our natural reaction. Always to look out instead of in. Always to try to remove the speck out of someone else's eye before we deal with the log in our own eye. So we need to stop and, and reevaluate and assess what's really going on. Ask some difficult questions. Is it not possible that in the trials and difficulties that we're going through that God is disciplining us? Is it not possible that the persecution that we face and that the church is experiencing even today, at least here in America, is our own fault? Who are we to complain about politicians who make laws against us? Isn't the sin of the church great? Have we failed to confess? Could it not be that God is allowing these laws to be passed and these judgments to be made to humble us? and to drive us to confess our sins and to turn to Him? Who are we to complain when society treats us the way it does? Is it not possible, maybe even probable, that it's our own fault? We are God's children. We know that He disciplines those whom He loves. Hebrews 12, 6 and 10. Again, First Peter. <laughs> Judgment begins with the house of God. Judgment begins with us. Maybe it's time for the church, as the church, to confess our sins. Adopt the attitude of Daniel. That's what's happening to us is what we deserve because we have wandered from his ways. Whatever the case, our God is good and right in all that he does. Well, then Daniel turns... Finally, in the last verses of our section here this morning, to his plea for God's mercy and forgiveness. Israel's punishment was certainly deserved. But Daniel, reading Jeremiah, knew that there was a promise as well, and he appeals to that promise in verses 16 to 19. Verse 16, let your anger, let your wrath turn away. Verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. We don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, because we have none, but because of your great mercy. And then very simply, very clearly, very poignantly, I think, in verse 19. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh, my God. Because your city, your people are called by your name. What an appeal. What a, what a prayer by Daniel. Appealing to God to act not for Israel's sake, because they don't deserve anything, but to act for his own sake, for his own honor, for his own glory and fulfillment of his own promise. God's work of saving and restoring his people, showing his own greatness, his own glory, his own righteousness. 
Do this, God, because you are great. Your people are certainly small and wicked and sinful. Shouldn't this be our appeal as well? As individuals and as a church, again, we're really not the ones being dishonored because of the way we are treated. It's really not about us. God's being dishonored. His name upon us is dishonored. But we dishonor God with our own sins. God does need to rescue us as people, as the church, from our own sins, and in doing so, display His great mercy and His righteousness. We pray that God would do these things, whether it's our prayer requests for healing, jobs, whatever it might be. Show your glory. Because we can always point to them and say, God did this. God did this. God saved me. God made me turn away from my sin and turn to truth and righteousness. It's not my work. That old hymn, well, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. It's always God's work. We should be praying that God would act on behalf of the church, not for the church's sake, not to rescue us or save us from the pain of persecution and difficulty and the discomfort that goes with it, but so that he would be glorified, so that we could point to it and say, without a doubt, God has done this. Of course, it's true for us as individuals as well. God does not save those who are deserving. (laughs) None of us are anyway. All have sinned. No one is righteous. All deserve the wages of sin, death and God's wrath. God always saves those who cannot save themselves. Rebels, wicked sinners. And in doing so, he shows his righteousness. In the Son who obeyed his law, who kept his word, and he shows his mercy and his forgiveness and his love. That's what salvation is, a gift from God. Received by grace only. Only through faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. God does this work. Because he loves us. Because he cares for us. He's a God who rescues his people. Daniel prays his prayer because of what he reads in Scripture. Again, a great motivation and source for our own prayers. He confesses. He acknowledges that what God has done is right and then he pleads for mercy. That's a model for us. Are things going wrong? Confess. Acknowledge God's just judgments. Plead for his mercy based on the promises in his word. A model for our own prayers, for ourselves and for each other. We've sinned. Punishment is just and right, but mercy and forgiveness is freely offered in Christ Jesus. If you have not received this gift, time to turn your face to the Lord your God and seek his mercy in Christ. For those of us who have, we do continue to sin, and that is an incredible frustration. But it's an opportunity over and over and over. A long repentance in the same direction an opportunity to go before God, confess our sin, acknowledge that his discipline is just and right, and to plead and appeal to the promises of God in Christ 
seek his mercy over and over and over again. Christians need the gospel as much or more than anybody else so that we do not get mired in the guilt of our own sin or rejoice too much in our own righteousness. We have sinned. Confess and appeal to God's mercy and the promises of God found in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Holy Lord God, our Father in heaven, we do acknowledge your greatness, your awesomeness, your holiness, your righteousness, that your ways and words are just and right. We indeed are deserving of your wrath because of our sin, but you have been gracious to us in Christ our Savior. Nothing we have is done by our own hands, but is a free gift for your grace and mercy toward us. We thank you for that. Keep us mindful of our own sins without becoming wallowing in in shame and guilt. Always remind us that that shame and guilt has been taken away in Christ. Keep us mindful of our sins so we do not become proud in our own eyes. But always know that the righteousness, the goodness that we have, is an alien righteousness given to us by you from Christ our Savior. Keep our eyes always looking to Him, always looking to You, always seeking after Your promises. Fulfill all of Your promises for us, for Your own sake and for Your own glory. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.